Hi, welcome back to the Film Geek Collective. Today we have me, George, aka Spike Green, and we have Cinemaster, aka Chris. Shoutouts first to Tessie Cat, Ashy Slashy, Nathan Seabolt, Elsie Cool, Real Sharks, Colin, and Larry. Alright, take it away, Cinemaster. Hi, everyone. So today we're actually going to be reviewing a true classic of the horror genre, John Carpenter's Halloween. Made on a $325,000 budget in contrast to two years earlier, John Carpenter's own $1,000, sorry, $100,000 budget of Assault on Precinct 13. So yeah, without further ado, we're going to get right into it, okay? So yeah, we have, first of all, I say that the ticking in the background of the theme song, you know, and you hear tick, 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 tick. Um, Australians will think of 60 Minutes. I just think it's like traffic lights that say go across the road, you know? That might be an Australian thing, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it uh, kind of is. And to be honest, this is a film that George has honestly never seen before. It's his first time watching it. And it was pretty good. By the way, this is an explicit podcast, and we're going to go full spoiler alert. Also, there is a bit of graphic content throughout this movie, so just a quick heads up for anyone who's squeamish. Yeah, I mainly put the explicit warning for language or the odd creed joke, but, you know, expect the subject matter of the movie to match the podcast, basically. Mm. So yeah, brilliant opening credits, great synth score composed by John Carpenter himself, as with all of his movies, like, except for The Thing, though. The Thing had a score by Ennio Morricone, who also did The Good, The Bad and The Ugly score and The Hateful Eight score, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm surprised that this actually was a very decent movie, even though some people would say that it was a little bit rubbish. And that's what? Just, and that's just people who heckle horror movies altogether. You're joking. It's it, just because it's simple, just because it lacks, like, jump scares like you'd see today, like, it's more subtle about them, just because it lacks blood or gore, it has some blood, does not mean you need to hate on it. That's you know? true. And... For most of the 70s, horror films were mostly centered on basically that home invasion or subgenre. Uh, not mostly slashers. You'd have to wait for the 80s to get there. But ha- Halloween was one of the starter slashers, I'd say. You've got Psycho in 1960 with Janet Leigh, and you've got Halloween in 1978 with Jamie Lee Curtis, her daughter. Oh, fun little fact that you might not know, George. Yeah? Jamie Lee Curtis's mother actually makes a cameo appearance in Halloween H2O. You're kidding. No, I kid you not. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's really interesting. I didn't even spot Janet Lee. That's really interesting. Wow. <laughs> Although, yeah, so we're going to get right into the movie. So we open on Halloween night in 1963. Michael Myers killing his sister when he's about six, I think. Yeah, six years old. And to be honest, it's probably one of the most intimidating parts of the movie I can think of. Especially since we mostly see it from uh, Michael's POV. Yeah, and the way he puts his mask on with his point of view and you just see through the eye holes is brilliant. You know, you're seeing his sister just casually do something. No one would ever suspect the six-year-old. Not to mention the great use of Steadicam technology, which have recently been invented and was for actually, I think, first used for Halloween. And used in other great classics like Wait, The Shining. Let me let me correct that. One of the first films to majorly use Steadicam was actually Rocky, which was two years earlier. Oh, yeah. my mistake. That's okay. You know, we're learning along with you guys. It's all good. So, you know, in the original, in the opening scene, it's a bit like Psycho in the way that the blade is actually never seen touching flesh. You only see the blood on, on uh, his, his, his uh, sister's breasts afterward, you know? Yeah, 
obviously, it's a very um, scary moment to think that a little kid would actually kill his older sister for, honestly, no real reason. Yeah. Mm. The strangest part about that opening scene is we never actually figure out why Michael killed his older sister, Judith. It's never explained. And it's never explained throughout the whole movie either. You know, the, one of the creepiest images in this film is a little six-year-old kid, Michael Myers, holding the knife. And, it's, and the tip has fucking blood on it. Yeah, I mean, that alone is crazy. And honestly, a bloody knife is something you would see on, like, maybe... An 18-year-old on Halloween costume. Yeah, <laughs> that's a hell of a costume for a kid. And now we move on to uh, Smith's Grove, Illinois, October 30th, 1978. Michael's not spoken a word in 15 years. The mute killer seems popular in this particular era, you know? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Anyway, we cut to a car driving up to Smith's Grove Sanitarium. Its yep. occupants are Dr. Loomis, which is Michael Myers' uh, psychiatrist, I'm assuming, and there's Marion Chambers. Marion Chambers, really? Yeah, that's the nurse's actual name. I did not know that. It seems like since he steals the car and then he carjacks and drives away, I say, even serial killers need driving lessons. <laughs> but still, this Michael Myers is ruthless. He is like the Terminator, which I'll bring up later. I'll explain why. He's like Schwarzenegger. Anyway, so... Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis first appears at nearly 12 minutes, and she was only 19 years old during filming. After the necessary exposition of the villain, the minimalist introduction and why we should be scared, we have someone to truly sympathise with, someone innocent to everything, building a sense of dread, and throughout the film we're going to have a certain dramatic irony, you know? Indeed. Yeah. Not to mention the Myers house itself is one of many creepy houses you see in horror movies. Is even leading up to probably my favorite scary house, the Elm Street house. Yeah. To be more specific, 1428 Elm Street. Oh, right. You know, I noticed that Elm Street is a street in Toy Story. <laughs> mm -hmm. In Toy Story 3, actually. Yeah. But, yeah. Hope hopefully Andy doesn't live too close to Freddy Krueger. <laughs> yeah. So, also, we have the Myers house where we get our first shadowy glimpse of the threat outside of the introduction reappearing in front of the camera so quickly, shoulders only, establishing his calculated precision and his speed, and, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is strolling down the street singing Just the Two of Us. It also establishes Michael Myers' nickname, The Shape. Yeah, not The Shape of Water, sorry, Del Toro. <laughs> Although I do like Shape of Water, I like uh, this shape as well. So, yeah, there's a certain theme to me in this film of being destined to your fate, introduced and seemingly confirmed in the school with Michael Myers standing behind the car on the other side of the road. Someone omnipresent mm -hmm. and we don't know where he could be next. Next shot of the window, he disappears. Fate never changes, the teacher says. Indeed. And to be honest, Laurie is one of those SMRT smart girls who can actually still pay attention to the question while looking out the window. I mean, she is that smart. Yeah. What? Anyway, we then cut later to Dr. Loomis, who is at a payphone, trying to alert Haddonfield of Michael Myers' return. We then cut to our next victim, which is actually probably what I think appears to be a mechanic, who Michael actually robbed of his clothes. And let me also go back to, uh, that was a bit later in my notes, but okay, uh, let's go back to uh, the, uh, the classroom scene for a second. I think that the way they say, the way the teacher says fate never changes makes us think death is inevitable and subtly heightens the stakes. 
And before that, we had the stupid fucking bullies who say, the boogeyman's coming. Hey, at least Michael grabs one of them. (laughs) Yeah, true. Which actually leads to one of my favorite uh, extended shots in the movie after an impressive sting in the soundtrack. It actually leads to Michael Myers not uh, just driving along and stalking little Tommy Doyle in fucking broad daylight, no less. Yeah. I mean, that alone is just a creepy thought. Just a guy stalking a kid in broad daylight. That is messed... You could not get away with that in 1978. Yeah, you could barely get away with that in 78. They're more sensitive now, I guess, with uh, what you can portray in horror films. Hmm. We also have the extended... The high-pitched noises like the train horn or the score prolongs to induce stress. Not to mention if you have, like, the American copy of it. Some people are afraid of the THX logo, which appears before some prints of Halloween. You know the one. (laughs) You just search up Deep Note. Yeah, I think we get the idea at THX 1138. (laughs) Yeah, so... That was just a little uh, joke referring to Robot Chicken Star Wars. Also, THX 1138 is actually a film that George Lucas did before Star Wars, along with American Graffiti, but we're not talking about that right now. So Chris was mentioning that Michael Myers killed a naked man in a hedge who was a truck driver, proving he's totally indiscriminate. Really, he's more of a pragmatic killer. He kills based on what he needs. Yeah, and essentially, to me, the truck driver, I think, would probably be a mechanic who had who Michael basically stripped of his uh, jumpsuit so he could find something better to uh, kill Lori in rather than these stupid freaking hospital gowns. All the better to kill you with, my dear, said Michael Myers in his head. <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely, we said earlier, he's the mute guy. But I like that uh, there's a running gag, seemingly, of the film, and poor PJ Souls just mispronounces the word totally <laughs> all throughout the film. Yeah, totally. <laughs> You know, I like one of the shots is there's a car at the right side of the frame with the girls from the left to middle in the foreground, like soon revealed to be Michael Myers in the car, just at the background, the right side. And they he blends in if he's as if he's just some boy. He seems like he's about to turn around as Danny says, speed kills, you know, humor to diffuse the situation a little bit. That's realistically what people would do when Annie says, I hate a guy with a car and no sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. You know, I just wanted to actually bring out one little interesting thing that no one actually really talks about throughout the entire movie. And it has to do with Michael's outfit in general. The jumpsuit he wears, depending on um, what frames of the film you look at it from, the outfit can actually be one of two different colors. It appears blue or it can appear green if you see a real-life image. Actually, in most of the... Shots for the film, it appears to be dark blue, but in real life, the film lighting just affected the way the outfit looked. And it was, in truth, actually more of a spruce green. Yeah, sort of to describe it, since we're audio-based, where it's more pale green, not vibrant, you know? That sort of thing. So, anyway, there's also a prolonged shot of the girls walking away to make them seem tiny. A long shot of girls, the widescreen frame, you can see that the killer could be anywhere. They're still shrunken from our perspective. But then we see him walk toward the camera again, as if to say, be paranoid, but, you know, just focus on the fun times. And I love the way Michael Myers appears from behind the hedge, just so abruptly, not in the fashion of a jump scare, but we know he means he means business. You know, he doesn't fuck around. Not to mention that, you know, a lot of, of uh, scenes that he just disappears in, it could probably mean one of two things. Either he can teleport, or he's very fucking fast. Yeah. In my opinion, he's very fucking fast. 
Definitely, yeah. So the way that he just disappears when they go to investigate, that that's like a mental health thing for poor Jamie Lee Curtis in this film. I mean, later though, there's another more prominent false jump scare without the sting, you know, but that jump scare is like a false sting. She kind of yelps and that provides the jolt and as she bumps into the sheriff. Who is actually the father of Annie Brackett. Yeah. So yeah, widescreen shots allow Laurie to be surrounded by suburbia, I reckon. So Michael appears at the clothesline later, then disappears two shots later. That sneaky motherfucker just doesn't give up, does he? Not to mention he did it while Laurie was still looking at him. He is really that fast. Who do yeah. you think he is, the Flash? And it's all a figment of her imagination, or is it? <laughs> okay, yeah. knock it off, Willy Wonka. There is no earthly way of knowing, knowing which direction we are going. <laughs> all right, moving on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, paranoia should be everywhere in any good horror movie. We hear the phone ring twice. It turns out to be just Annie, but the fact that you can, we expect to hear his breathing, it could still be anywhere. Also, you'll notice throughout the film, there are variations on the same bits of the score and the repeated main theme, just like the films The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and uh, Suspiria from 1977. Yeah. Mm. Later on, we then cut to Dr. Loomis and a gravedigger heading to the cemetery where Judith Myers, Michael's sister, not his mother, George, oh, was, oh, was actually uh, buried. But it turns out that Michael had already returned to Haddonfield and actually nicked off with the tombstone. That uh, that little bit of rock will actually come up later on in the movie. Yeah, that was that was my mistake thinking it was the mother. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I get to the notes, I'll I'll say sister. So uh, yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> so the red car that they go in, that Annie and uh, Laurie next go in, I think predates Christine by five years. And I like how there's a differing transition. You think you're going to see them arrive at the destination, but instead you see Dr. Loomis and his buddy uh, arrive in a pale yellow car arriving at a location. Sort of a more seamless transition, but not not really obvious, like kind of obvious, but not. Dr. Loomis and the grave digger find a small empty patch of dirt where the tombstone for Judith Myers, Michael's sister, was was, but something's definitely happened to it. I think Michael took the tombstone away. Yeah, I kind of already mentioned that, George. Oh, my bad. That's okay. (laughs) Uh, No harm, no no foul. Sometimes we say the notes a bit out of order, so forgive us if there's a bit of repetition. Let me just see how much time we... Okay. Um, So Don't Fear the Reaper is nicely, that's playing in the car. And that's a pretty good song. It's a bit on the nose saying Don't Fear the Reaper, but... No, it's not on the nose. I more see it as ironic, actually. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could see them that way. Not to mention the fact that Lori and Annie are actually smoking in the car, and they're actually passing Annie's his father, the sheriff, and they had just had to hide that stash away. <laughs> at least it wasn't uh, marijuana or anything. Something probably illegal at that time. But, you know, I love how also Michael's just following them in the brown-yellow car, but then Laurie gets to the sheriff in time, who says someone broke into a Halloween store stealing masks, rope, and knives, and we can Actually, tell it quick. wasn't really a Halloween store. It was more of a sort of regular old um, general store, in fact. Yeah, it seemed like a Halloween store at the time to me. But yeah, I mean, what sort of store conveniently has ropes and knives in it? I mean, it's a little bit silly, if you ask me. Maybe a might to ten. Um, international audiences won't get that. It's basically a hardware store. 
<laughs> I mean, what? Is it a general store for John Rambo? <laughs> yeah, there's a nice lens flare at about 33 minutes and uh, 40 seconds. Oh, right. Let me mention in the previous scene, when Michael passes Loomis without him noticing Michael in the car, he passes in the middle layer of the background, you know, not quite the far background, but not quite the foreground. That's talking in terms of deep focus, but the next scene we got lens flares at 33 minutes, 40 seconds, lasting for a bit. The way that it kind of shadows Annie is a good cinematic technique. In fact, Tomorrow's Filmmakers uh, YouTube channel actually taught me about shooting shadow side, a technique I learned from them where Laurie's partially shadowed in the sunlight as she's in the car, giving off an interesting lighting composition on the go. Not to mention the fact that throughout the entire film, Michael Myers is just all over the fucking place. He can blend into the foreground, the background. He can blend into freaking anything he wants to. He is that fast. Yeah. Not, not to mention, the actor who played him for most of the time, Nick Castle, actually only played him for around 25 cents a day. A what? Is that I a- know, right? Well, 25 cents meant more back then. But, yeah, I like how also this film was one of the pioneers for handheld work, but as I mentioned earlier, Rocky was the first one to really use it in 1976. But you see it from the back seat of the car throughout the conversation between Laurie and Annie. And I'm just thinking, for Annie to defend herself, I'm thinking, Annie, get your gun. And then Michael just saying, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Stab! <laughs> yeah, I like the lighting they do at night. Too many movies make it too dark these days. Look at, there's a particular Game of Thrones episode I caught a glimpse of where I could not see shit. I literally just could not see barely any part of the screen. I won't say what to avoid spoilers. Well, let's just be glad that it wasn't Austin Powers stalking Laurie. <laughs> yeah, groovy baby. <laughs> so, yeah, I like how they still have a bunch of lights, like the street lights, the house on the right, the car in front. And the female figure, who is one of the characters who goes inside the house, is practically shadowed except for her hair. Not to mention all the freaking jack o all over the place. Yeah, I mean, later, there's even a jack o watching two people have sex. so during this scene we're hearing uh not the sex scene but during the uh road scene we're hearing the kids say trick or treat give me something good to eat and you know what i said i say just ask michael he'll murder someone for you (laughs) i know dark joke so yeah yeah i think you said that already so you can yeah. yeah Not to mention the fact that there is one scene that I kind of felt would upset George a little bit. and Yeah, it was more implied. It was like that scene in Terminator 2's extended edition. That is true. It's the fact that... It actually, he strangles a dog to death. Yeah. The, uh, wa- mostly. Yeah, the Wallace family dog, Lester, which I kind of feel was a little bit mean-spirited for Michael. But given the fact that earlier on, Sheriff Bracken and Loomis went to investigate the Myers house... And actually found another dead dog there, which means Michael probably killed it and, given a bit of subtle foreshadowing, probably ate that dog as well. Sheesh. Wow. <laughs> to quote Donald Pleasance, he got hungry. Yeah. We fortunately never see the dog in the first instance, unlike the basement filled with cats in the Evil Dead remake. Mm. Or yeah. that kennel scene in John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, yeah, where the dogs are transforming, that one? Yeah, I mean, that is just nasty shit. Yeah, great use of stop motion, all the transformation. Anyway, so 
Another milder jump scare is where a window suddenly shutters mid-conversation, but the volume's only a little bit louder. It's not, like, deafeningly loud because it doesn't deserve it at that moment. Yeah, and then Loomis goes into a sort of um, backstory for Michaels. Yes. No reason, no conscience, no understanding, or even the most rudimentary sense of life and death, good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old with his blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. And he par- to paraphrase, I'm just going to say he spent eight years trying to reach him, seven years trying to save him. Actually, he spent eight years trying to reach out to Michael and spent the next seven years trying to keep him locked up, not save him. Oh, well, save him from others then. Again, I'm mixing my notes a bit. I wrote him during the movie and I didn't know what was going to happen next. (laughs) Oh, that's okay, George. So, yeah. So, we already mentioned that Annie's pet gets killed. And then, then, you know, Laurie finally... Tommy finally sees the boogeyman and Laurie calls his bullshit. And then Laurie doesn't initially notice because he's gone, but then Tommy's peeking out the window. We hear the the breathing. Reminds me of a softer Darth Vader in some ways. (laughs) Creating a massive sense of dramatic irony, like I mentioned earlier. Annie's in the background in her house. Michael is outside the window in the foreground. He lets the flower pot drop down, causing Annie to nearly see him. In fact, there's actually a theory that Michael is the human version of a cat, knocking stuff over randomly. I don't think that was Michael necessarily uh, knocking the flower pot over. I think the rope just um, broke over time, and that's why the flower pot dropped. I thought it was. I thought he just bumped it with his shoulder and it fell off. I don't know. Yeah, it looked more like the rope just kind of, of either snapped or untied, and causing the flower pot to actually drop down, and Michael trying to make a quick get over, like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. But let me elaborate on the Terminator thing I said earlier. Michael Myers bears an early resemblance to Arnold Schwarzenegger from The Terminator. The reason it's Schwarzenegger is because Terminator is a slasher film. In my opinion, The Terminator is a bit of a horror film, you know, similar structure to even creating the uh, Final Girl thing. Uh, Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World is shown briefly on television, complete with the RKO logo. Which, to both me and George, is kind of a little Easter egg since five year, since at least four years later, John Carpenter would later go on to create his own remake of The Thing. Yeah, not to mention, that's the first time I've seen the RKO logo since the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. For the Rocky Horror Picture Show, they wouldn't let them use a giant 20th Century Fox logo, so they had to settle for the RKO one. Ah, I see. Yeah, I can explain that. I can do an episode on Rocky Horror Picture Show down the track. It's all good. But yeah, so the fact that the thing's playing on TV, Howard Hawks, who directs this film, is a major inspiration for John Carpenter. Like Chris said, uh, John Carpenter later remade it. So this is a shout-out in the same way Scream plays Halloween in the background. I think it's that scene, now that I remember clearly. So basically, it's a shout-out within a shout-out. Yeah. Well, fourth wall break inside a fourth wait, wall break? Wait, they're That's not, like 16 walls. Then they're not playing the they're not playing the thing from another world inside of Halloween inside of Scream. They're playing a different scene. I think it might be when the boyfriend's killed. Yeah, I get what you mean, but I was just trying to make my own little <laughs> Deadpool skin in there, but Oh yeah. Oh well. <laughs> so yeah. Next we have the door slamming shut in the laundry shed. Then Michael appears behind it in the next shot. The door's left open but shuts by itself. We never see him, but perhaps the door sticks. I think the door does stick. Yeah, I think that is the reason. One of the best shots of the film is Michael Myers in the reflection of the door as Annie's trapped inside. You know, Annie tries to escape through the window. We think it's Annie, Lindsay's older sister, who's answering the phone, but no. She's told to check on Annie, however. 
Lindsay gets her out fine. Actually, Lindsay isn't really Annie's younger sister. The reason that Annie is there is because she's actually babysitting Lindsay. Oh, right. I meant to say older sister. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. I mix up my words a bit, you know, mm. keeping errors to be human. Yeah, I think one thing we forgot to mention is that one of the key things that um, Lori and her friend Annie were doing were actually babysitting two different kids at the time, Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights, the TV states. How ironic that the TV causes Lindsay's ignorance to the true problem for a minute. Michael reappears again at 50 minutes behind the car, shown right in the foreground from the back. Huh. And as I've mentioned in Scream, there are certain rules to avoid dying in a horror film. Number one, you can never have, have sex. Number two, you can never do... Well, you can never drink or do drugs. Unfortunately, Annie is not as lucky since she basically... He broke rule two and immediately actually gets killed off by Michael next. After she gets nearly suffocated by him and then has her throat cut out, out by a knife. Yeah. So step one to dying in a horror film. Forgetting the keys to your car. It's just dumb luck Annie isn't snuffed immediately. But then that's disregarded when Annie's strangled to death by Michael and her throat slid as Chris said. In the notes I made the spelling mistake of slid her throat instead of slit her throat. Whoops. <laughs> okay. I'll be sure to cut your windpipe out next time, buddy. Okay! <laughs> so, there's another sci-fi cliche in the uh, in the film they're watching that Tommy and Lindsay are watching, which is Forbidden Planet, as it says in the credits. They watch before seeing Michael carry the corpse of someone who we presume, who we know is Annie. Again, these distant shots show the sense of inevitability, a sense of helplessness adding to the dread. Again, Laurie calls bullshit. We then cut onto a shot of Loomis actually guarding the uh, Myers house and then find a bunch of uh, kids trying to go up to it, one of them being called Lonnie. And after that, Loomis just goes all, Hey, Lonnie, get your ass away from there. <laughs> to be honest, Loomis is kind of a dick to kids. I like it like that. <laughs> now, there's a technical issue with this film in the various editions of Halloween. Just like Apocalypse Now, the uh, it's been argued over what the proper color timing is and what the proper color composition is you know in the version we watched which was the what's the year on the back chris do you know um it was released it's a re-release from 2011 actually oh okay it's a re-release we're not sure when the original day the disc was but i take it it's just some standard print but it's mostly more blue in the night scenes and more i don't know you you kind of see orange things but it's not teal and orange or anything it's still more natural colors hmm. But yeah, the colours have changed between the theatrical presentation and now, and we're unlikely to get like the true, true colours that we saw back in 1978. So yeah, moving back onto the film, Laurie starts to check the window again, but still nothing. Oh, let me mention one more thing about the colour. If you want a proper edition that's close to the intentions that has officially been approved by Dean Cundy, the uh, director of photography... He suggests the THX DVD from America, which is why I, you should go region-free. I have a whole episode on being region-free, and you can see how there. So back to the movie now. Laurie starts to check the window again, but still nothing. The more she looks, the more careless she gets. Weird that during the scene where uh, PJ Souls and their boyfriend have sex, a lit jack-o'-lantern watches them from the side of the bed. <laughs> it's a definite foreshadowing that only virgins survived the film as Michael Myers' shadow briefly looms over the bed. Ooh. 
Yeah, which then actually brings me to Scream's third rule of surviving a horror movie. Never under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because that's what happens to Bob. Linda asks him to go grab a... Well, Bob is actually Linda's boyfriend. After Linda asks him to go grab a beer, he says, I'll be right back. <laughs> and immediately we know he's going to die next. And he actually does it in probably my favorite kill of the entire movie. He just grabs Bob by the throat, lifts him up, and then just pins him to a cabinet with a single kitchen knife. Yeah. I mean... How strong is that knife? And damn, Michael's been doing a lot of uh, weightlifting. Yeah, the only lighting you see before the fact is he's mostly in shadow. You only really see him when he opens the fridge and kind of when he's in the hall, sort of. Before, mm. I think Michael turns the lights on when he jumps out. Mm, actually, doesn't he? Actually, no, he doesn't. But, oh, right. But you do see a, a faint glint off of his knife before, you know. Yeah, it, it, the, the actual stab is off screen, but then you see the knife in the guy. Yeah, not and then in probably the funniest moment I can think of in any horror movie, Michael actually steps back and admires his work with a couple of head tilts, which yeah. was actually an idea done by John Carpenter. Yeah, a bit like a cat, really. Yes, and Jordan Peele, I think, mostly approves of that theory. Jordan Peele, who directed Get Out. And Us. Yeah, I only saw Get Out personally. Um, but also, yeah, he's holding the boyfriend by the neck and his feet go limp. And yeah, so Michael, then in the ghost boyfriend disguise, refuses to answer before Linda turns her back to be on the phone before she's strangled to death with the phone cord, is what George was going to say. And to be honest, I find um, Michael's little ghost Bob costume kind of cute, really. It's probably something that you'd probably catch either me or George dressing up as on Halloween. <laughs> Except without the knife, I don't want to scare anyone. <laughs> 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 yeah, if you're wondering if I'm all right after the strangle sound effect, yes, I am. <laughs> but mm. yeah, we have, she's strangled by the phone cord partially off camera, so we hear the sounds to heighten the disconnect between Laurie's disbelief and what's actually happening. What we know is happening. Loomis finally gets his shit together, unlike Laurie, getting away from the bush he was at, investigating the neighborhood for something he knows is out there. Like Cassandra, he knows the truth, but he's cursed to have no one believe him. Of course, after seeing the car that Michael made his getaway in. Myers. <laughs> yeah, of course. And George, yeah? be, ca be careful not to choke on your aspirations. Oh, the Star Wars pun, of course. Yes, I had to make that <laughs> little joke from Rogue One because, I mean, it's pretty fitting for this situation. Yeah, so anyway, uh, finally, even Laurie starts coming to her senses. Linda? Annie? I think it's time to believe in Michael Myers. <laughs> or, to make more sense, the boogeyman. She then heads over to the Wallace house and finds all the carnage that has happened. She finds Annie's body all um, decked out over the Wallace's bed with Judith's tombstone up top. Then, she, then Bob's body uh, basically drops down, and then she finds Linda's body in the closet. I mean, you know, Bob or Rob or whatever his name is. I Bob. Bob. Uh, he appears like a gymnast swinging from a bar upside down. He he appears like, uh, you know, when the bodybuilder is introducing Caroline, he appears like that. Mm -hmm. So Linda appears in the same room. Chris says it's like Michael's literally part of the shadows. Yeah. Later, uh, after Lori sees all the well massacres that happen to her friends, another interesting shot is when Michael is literally stepping out from the shadows, making it seem like he is nothing but that. A shapeless shadow that can blend into pretty much anything. And then the chase begins. And he's only lit by the curtains too, you know. And finally, 
we get the final girl climax. Michael's smart enough to break through the door of the closet with his... Well, not the closet. He's sorry. He's breaking through the other door first. With his super strength, a killer we mostly know on reputation, and he's fully exposed. Also, the neighbor who closes his curtains on Laurie is a complete and total fuckwit. Although... Yeah, I mean, it's just a bit of a dick move for him to just close his curtains and then turn off the, the porch light. What yeah. a freaking asshole. The importance of keys is also proven again as Laurie has forgotten again, but when she does get in, we still hear the man's breathing, Michael Myers, who is stabbed with a knitting needle in the neck. Well, after sending um, Tommy and Linda uh, up, oh, sorry, Tommy and Lindsay up to, um, you know, protect them, Michael comes through the window and in her in self-defense... Lori grabs an knitting needle and just stabs it right through his neck. But come on. Well, she thinks that he's dead, but come on. This is your first horror movie. You know the killer's not going to go down with one freaking blow. He's going to get up two, three more times. <laughs> but he appears again behind Laurie as she talks to Tommy and Lindsay. Tommy notices and she gets to run. Screams almost like not quite like the kid in Home Alone, but similar. I don't know. You can't kill the boogeyman. Not realizing Michael has the biggest fucking knife you will see, using it to barge his way into the closet to an anguished lorry. The door shakes. It's pronounced anguished. Anguished. Okay, I was just trying to enunciate. That's all. It's cool. (laughs) The door shakes and shakes until he bursts his fist through it, turns the light on, knocks down the cabinet. Is this the end for Laurie? Is her fate decided? Well, Not not yet. yet. She then grabs a coat hanger and untangles it to then stab Michael in the freaking eye with it. Then he grabs his drop knife and just plunges it into his chest. Yeah, I wasn't sure what got it to stab him in the eye, but now that Chris said it. <laughs> yeah, finally, the mystery's solved. So they finally defeat him. But we can never be sure. Yeah. Or can Careful. we? This is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back up for one last scare. His corpse lies on the ground as she opens the cabinet. In a way, Laurie becomes a bit of a mother to her siblings as her parents stupidly aren't home. Ugh. Idiots! So then Laurie tells Tommy and Lindsay to head over to another neighbor's house and tell them about what happened. Tommy and Lindsay burst, uh, run out the front door screaming bloody murder, which then attracts the attention of Dr. Loomis. Finally. Yeah, and as Laurie sits, man, Dr. Loomis. And as Laurie sits down for a comforting moment, she doesn't notice Michael in the background doing probably the scariest kind of a resurrection for a killer. He just sits up. Uh, sits up a, on the bed. Well, not on the bed, on the floor, but it's a very scary one. On the floor, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and as Laurie is slowly walking away, Michael gets up to try and make one last attempt to kill her. In the process, Laurie actually manages to pull off Michael's mask, revealing the actor of um, Tony Moran, who at one point had to replace Nick Castle at one bit. Yeah, I'm not sure what the circumstances were, but the way that Michael Myers gets up in that scene is how Chris tells me he wakes up every morning. (laughs) Yeah. Then Dr. Loomis finally managing to get... Of the steps, just fucking unloads his revolver into Illumi- into Myers and shoots him a, a, a great six big times. six times. Although, if you watch Halloween 2 in edited footage, it looks like he was shot seven times. Point is, six bullets and boom, knocked over the uh, back porch. Poor Jamie Lee Curtis is sitting, sitting there sobbing after the fact, you know. Michael then disappears from the vegetable garden. I mean... It good. wasn't a, a garden. It was actually just the front yard. Front yard, yeah. I confused it for a vegetable garden. Yeah, that's fine. In, in. Yeah. Curtis... Laurie then asked Loomis if that was the boogeyman. And Loomis replies simply by saying, as a matter of fact, it was. He then looks over the patio and finds that Michael has disappeared. Run off to actually stalk away through the night again. And as they end, 
And as the movie ends, we can he- constantly hear his breathing, yeah. meaning that no one in Haddonfield is safe. Good man that Dr. Loomis, he didn't know. But then that woman, Jamie Lee Curtis has been a lot for what? Sorry, through a lot for one day. And yeah, I uh, think she first outgrew superstitions and then she believed in them again because of what happened. And a bit of a plot hole that Chris pointed out to me in 1963, Michael Myers is six years old. Yet in the end credits, he's revealed to be age 23 in 1978. He'd be 21 in 1978. Yeah, I mean, that was only shown for Michael's unmasked actor, Tony Moran. Even though that's the guy who played him, who was masked, Nick Castle, was credited as The Shape. Which is probably the greatest end credit you can be given. Yeah, greatest end credit since the aeroplane f- movie and uh, the naked gun. <laughs> so yeah, Chris thinks this film's really set in 1980, which I tried pointing out also is the future, technically to 1978 audiences. Actually, I don't think it's really set in 1980. The movie clearly points out that it's set in 1978. I just think that that's just a little error they made in the end credits. Yeah, but if he's 23, that's clearly 1980. He's got to be 21 in 1978. If he was born in 1957, he's 6 in 1963, then he's only going to be, what? He's going to be young. Oh, sorry. I lost my train of thought there. It's okay. To be honest, I blame the idiot who typed that up in the teleprompter. (laughs) <laughs> They'll read anything in the teleprompter, just like Ron Burgundy. <laughs> yeah. Go fuck yourself, San Diego. Not literally, though. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm sure p- plenty of people in San Diego love Anchorman. So, yeah, in the body count in this film, we have five. With a body count of only five, the film still manages to build a sense of dread and establish these characters at least on a base level, with Laurie going to most change the entire film. In fact, this film has less of a body count than Pulp Fiction. And don't worry, we'll get to that episode later. And now I think it's time to do the shoutouts. Alrighty then, alright. Three, two, one, here we go. Before we go, we just want to give our shout-outs to Tessie Cat, Ashley, no- Ashley Slashy, Nathan at Seabolt, Elsie Cool, Real Sharks, Colin, and Larry. Real Sharks, a.k.a. Ririshaku. And also, Colin is now known as the handle Call Me Frankly Fiedler, and his handle is actually Autistic in Melbourne. Autistic in Melbourne, that is. But we thought we'd give you a shout-out. So anyway, you're always welcome to Film Geek Collective. Thanks for having me, George. And don't you forget it. All right, thank you guys. You're always welcome at the Film Geek, <clears throat> the Film Geek Collective, and don't you forget it. All right, peace out. Woo. <laughs>